Hello, hello. Welcome to our Job Descent podcast. We're introducing Amok Bhatnagar today, who is a Regenerant Talent Search Top 40 finalist 2020, which is the most prestigious STEM competition for U.S. students. He created a data science methodology to compare two surgical procedures based on cost-effectiveness, open appendectomy, and laparoscopic appendectomy. He's also part of the Eyes of Gangyol since Amog received second grand award in biochemistry in 2019. He's also led Student Ramram for Fit Conference Cafe, organizing donations for various charities. He also co-founded a statewide research society in Wisconsin for younger students on how to do research and present their findings. He is a numerously awarded professional piano player for 14 years, a debater, and Amog has a passion not only for politics, but also cooking and playing tennis. So there's a lot of cool topics to cover today on research and beyond the project board as well. So hi Amog, welcome to the podcast. Hi Blanca, I'm, I'm so honored and so thrilled to, to be here. I think this is going to be a, a really fun time. I think so too. And to increase the level of happiness and funness at the podcast, we usually <laughs> date back to the beginnings. So do you remember your first exposure to the world of science? Yeah, you know what? It actually came from um, like baking and, and, and cooking. I, I've always really enjoyed um, um, cooking and, you know, there's a lot of kind of analytical and scientific stuff right like I, th I think when we're kids we all want to ask that question of why and we just never get a straight answer because it keeps on going you know you one answer the answer to one why question the response to that is just another why you know so that, that was really my my first exposure into like asking questions creating like theories and kind of like testing them in the kitchen you know I, like um one of my kind of projects for the last uh, couple of years for the last 10 years actually has been I've been trying to like perfect my chocolate uh, chocolate chip cookie recipe <laughs> through like like reading scientific papers and like reading articles um, and that's that's kind of how I first got into like hypothesizing and experimenting and then I think after that research kind of took off <laughs> that's really cool <laughs> and um, I think that the why phase is especially prolonged mm -hmm. in the case of scientists so it's oh, sure, sure. <laughs> not excluded <laughs> for the beginnings of our childhood um, so you, <laughs> you read actual research papers and journals and how to perfect a chocolate cookie recipe yeah, <laughs> yeah I um, it's kind of, I mean it's kind of embarrassing but like we can do trials we can run hypotheses we can um really use the the scientific method to a T in baking. But I mean, to me at least, the key component of any research project or any project in general has always been uh, the background information, kind of like reading and understanding what's happening at a very, very uh, basic level. And for that, it was a combination of, you know, just regular bio, kind of like hydrophobic, hydrophilic um, solutions and liquids. But uh, there have also been a lot of like food journals. So a lot of like theories on how food science works a lot of theories on how we can like improve certain certain cooking techniques it's kind of it's extremely nerdy and extremely like specifically nerdy but 
I don't know. I, I, I really enjoy it. Definitely <laughs> out of the box. And if you think about it, just as you expanded on, kitchen is truly the lab of food. And um, mm -hmm. you can break down the concepts underlying um, everyday procedures, such as adding flour to a mixture or um, on how to get the desired consistency. One thing is, um, in, in the US, they're called baking soda and baking powder. I, I know they're sometimes called differently in, uh, in, in different countries. But they're essentially the things that make um, baked goods rise. Uh, it, it's actually sodium bicarbonate, so NaHCO3. When it reacts with water or, and an acid, it creates CO2 gas, which causes like breads to rise, which causes cookies to rise, and so on and so forth. It's literally actual actual chemistry. Because I mean, in my um, in my chemistry class, we have to make solutions called buffers, and my buffer actually was a solution of sodium bicarbonate and sodium carbonate, which is baking soda. It really is actual like chemistry and physics and biology together. And it's, and it's quite practical too. <laughs> Absolutely. And CO2 mm -hmm. rises above the norm or the borders of your dough. And it's really interesting that you could transfer those concepts um, into research experiments that you conducted at school. Uh, but after mm -hmm. that initial moment or spark, was there an influential person in your life or some pivotal moments that inspired you eventually to take experimentation to the next level? Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, I think it was a combination of a lot of things. Like in, in the U.S., there's this very famous uh, documentary series um, called the NOAA Documentaries. And they're just documentaries on very famous things in science. So there was one on uh, sleep, like how dreams work. There was one on the Manhattan Project. There's one on string theory. And I remember my dad always used to show me those, like, um, in the afternoons on like Friday nights or Saturday nights, they were on like public broadcast um, uh, stations. So we would watch these documentaries and they're so fantastic. And I, I think that sort of sparked my interest, but what really made me want to do research was when I saw my brother actually doing research. He, um, he also was a double ISF alum, double ISF winner. And when I saw that he was able to do like ask his own questions and solve them in a research lab, I thought that was fantastic. Because I think that's always something I've kind of been at odds with, I guess, with uh, with school in that you kind of have to learn exactly what someone teaches you. Whereas with, with research, you can ask whatever question is in your brain, figure out how to answer it however you want, and then design an experiment to answer it in that way. I just loved seeing him doing that, and I loved imagining me doing that. That is really cool that it's... <laughs> partly gene-related, the passion for science and the faculty, <laughs> but uh, that he also continually inspires you and you have him in your life as a role model who you can turn to and, and ask questions. I think it's, it is something that's in the family. Like every, my dad was telling me like, my dad's grandfather was, a, uh, was an engineer. It was a very like prominent engineer in, in India. Um, my dad's father was also an engineer. And my dad himself is also an engineer. So he was saying, like, you know, to, to me, he was saying, like, you know, your brother, I think he's going to be a doctor. So I, I don't really think you got a choice. You got to be, a, <laughs> gotta be an engineer. <laughs> of course, that wasn't really a, an issue to me. I think engineering is such a such an interesting field, too, just because it's, I think, the pinnacle of doing whatever you want and answering your questions in whatever you want. You literally get to build whatever you want and 
oh my god, it's such a great feeling. I was reminded, you know, of the um, traditional testing that parents can take in that, okay, you either <laughs> become an engineer, a lawyer, a doctor, and there's no D option. <laughs> um, but it definitely is great that um, you have that analytical skills in the family. And I also heard that um, mm -hmm. engineering schools in India are way harder to get into than, than any other schools. Oh my god. I, I was um, during the college application process in the U.S. is is very long. Like we, uh, so you like we write essays and you take tests and it's 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 a very like um, thorough I guess intensive process. And so I was asking my dad like how he got into this school called IIT Kanpur, and he's like, oh, you know, I studied for like like twelve months. Wow. Like to to take like the entrance exam, and he's like, you know, we didn't have electricity in my house, so I studied by moonlight. The so ever million that take that test, only like three hundred ish, get into the school. It's like a point two percent, I believe, acceptance rate. And I'm like, oh my god. <laughs> that is truly mind blowing. He had the perseverance to continue to accomplish his dreams despite the setbacks um, that he has faced, and. I think mm -hmm. it is truly important um, in whatever phase of life we are in to continue to push through. But not to get too sentimental, <laughs> um, back <laughs> to research, uh, because you participated at ISAF uh, twice. Mm -hmm. And could you expand on your research work specifically on the crucial role of superoxide dismutase and how your study relates to SOD2? There's something called uh, oxidative stress. I, I'm sure you probably know, but that happens in the body. And essentially, um, there, are these, there are these things called reactive oxygen uh, species, which are things like uh, O2- called superoxide or H2O2- or superperoxide. And these are very highly, like, negative molecules like very polar molecules um, and they're naturally created by the body's like metabolic uh, processes from the mitochondria the the issue is that um, if left unchecked these uh, reactive oxygen species can damage certain parts of the body and they can so they can damage different organelles in the cell and they can damage your the dna in the cell leading to cancer and leading to horrible diseases so what happens is that there are also these things called antioxidants that um, destroy these uh, superoxides, uh, destroy these reactive oxygen species. And the most prominent one, so like the body's natural uh, antioxidant, is superoxide dismutase 2. So it's essentially when the amount of superoxide uh, dismutase is above the amount of uh, reactive oxygen species, it can lead to damage to the cell. And when the amount of superoxide dismutase is below the amount of oxygen, uh, reactive oxygen species, it can also damage the cell. So kind of the body has to kind of perfectly balance the amount of reactive, reactive oxygen species and the amount of superoxide dismutase. So I kind of studied how the body regulates that amount through a, the transportation process of that, uh, of that protein. It really is interesting because those reactions are taking place every second or every second um, in, in our <laughs> body. Flight is truly constant and between AROS and antioxidants and just as you've expanded on, it can lead to various diseases. You've mapped out what SOD2 does. How did you continue the project? What was your methodology? Did you know what you wanted to achieve or you dive deep into the process and then new ideas came up during investigation? Firstly, I love that word Zeta second. <laughs> great, great word. Great word. Um, but yeah, I think so at first I was kind of working in a uh, computational lab and in that lab we were kind of modeling the transportation process. 
of, uh, of, of that protein. They, they were teaching me how to like computationally model it. And it was very, very interesting to me because I love seeing how we can take something so complex, like a protein transportation system, and just dial it down to its key, key elements and sort of model those on the computer. It, it was, I think, like the, the height of my exposure to the world of like computer science and computer modeling. And that, that, was, that was amazing. But then um, what happened was after I was done with that project, which was my first ISA project of computationally modeling this, this process, some issues happened and I couldn't go back to that lab. Found another professor who works in a microbiology field. And I was super, super lucky to, uh, to be able to um, work in their lab as well. And so then he showed me how to um, kind of model what I did computationally in a bio lab, so in a wet lab environment. And that, I think both of those labs I worked on, I'm so incredibly thankful that I had that opportunity to, to work in those labs because not, not everyone does. But I think it was so incredible seeing something that was computationally theorized and something that was computationally thought of to happen in a wet lab environment. Absolutely. Like the exponential growth we experience in technology and CS helps us to attach parameters to biological processes um, that couldn't have been discovered or mapped by such critical procedures before. Right. My second uh, mentor actually said it perfectly because he said that the last 50 years have been the age of math and CS. And I think, and he said like the next 50 years with sort of like gene editing with CRISPR, with the human genome sequencing project, he thinks the next 50 years are going to be the, the years of uh, biology. But right now we're kind of in the, in the transition point. Right now is kind of the time of like computational biology. Yeah. It truly is um, applicable because a lot of people focus on picking up new languages, but I feel that Python should be on your list or any other computational languages. Right. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I think uh, like Duolingo, no, uh, Code Academy. That's it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Mm. Um, and you worked on computational biology and then to map out its place, you have to identify where it was actually taking place at which protein, right? Right. And, right. and I, I mean, what was so interesting was that like my second mentor was telling me like, if we hadn't done the computational part, then the, um, that project might've taken like up to a decade. But since we had done that computational part, the p only part that we had to kind of prove in lab took uh, six months, which to me was a very long time. But I think in terms of biological processes, which are biological projects, which are you know, sort of spanned in like five, six year increments, that was incredibly uh, quick. No wonder why scientists in the past are all, always photographed with gray hair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you, you also did a, a microbiology project, right? So, I mean, that, that must have been um, like extremely, uh, like sort of like the same um, issues arose or? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, not just within the methodology, but with the person who was conducting it. <laughs> uh, okay, no, no, no. Don't worry, I had the, the same uh, same problem many times. <laughs> Do you remember any mishaps that you had at a lab? Uh, that seems funny now, but at the moment it wasn't that funny. <laughs> um, my, my, my favorite one was um, we had to do something called a, a kinase assay. Essentially, a kinase carries out a... Um, a biological, like a, like a biochemical procedure called a phosphorylation, where it, it's kind of just like an on-off switch for different proteins. 
So when a protein is phosphorylated, it's usually on. And when it's not phosphorylated, it, it might be off. So um, the thing that turns on and off the switch is called the kinase. And the kinase itself actually has to be active to, to be able to turn on and off the switch. And buying the kinase is actually very expensive. So we looked online and we found like the cheapest option to buy the kinase, which is pretty cheap. And we bought it. And then we tried running the procedure of trying to take that kinase and turning on and off a switch. And um, it, it, the, the procedure just, it, it wasn't, it didn't like give a null result and it didn't give a positive result. It just gave no result. And so we we're kind of like, that's not what's supposed to happen. So after like a couple of months, after a couple, of like, I think maybe like two weeks of, of like calling and researching around, what we found out was that that kinase was inactive. So they, they sold us an inactive kinase. And so we we're just like, oh my God. <laughs> Because, I mean, I don't know what the purpose of an inactive kinase. I mean, they definitely didn't market it as an inactive kinase. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> that is how commercials work. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, like, think about it now. It, it, it's it's so funny. But, like, in the moment, it was kind of like, oh, my God, we've wasted two weeks and so much money just trying to figure this out. <laughs> yeah, time is money, for sure, in that sense. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that those mishaps have to be in the research project. In food mm -hmm. chemistry, there is this phrase I've heard, the bliss point. The great amount of sweetness and savory taste to even get you to eat more. Well, it's used by <laughs> big food companies, but I think it's the same with research. Um, it's not just all rainbows and sunshine, but um, you you got to have those little challenges and mishaps to enjoy the process and make it memorable. There's a famous like painter in, in the U.S. named Bob Ross, and he kind of says, "You can't have the light without the dark." And I, th I think that's a hundred percent true. Oh, who he who does the tutorials, right? Right, for sure. Yeah, I mean, we've um, my dad loves to paint, so we've kind of been like painting some of his tutorials uh, during the quarantine pandemic. Oh, that's so great <laughs> that you painted it as a new hobby. Mom actually <laughs> is a painting artist. When I was uh, four years old, I painted one of her um, masterpieces in the back of her garden. Oh my god. <laughs> and I was totally silent, which was a kind of a red flag that I just disappeared. And her first reaction was not scolding me, but it still hangs <laughs> on our living room wall. So it's. Oh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's, that, that is very sweet. <laughs> she let me explore her painting brushes and all. Um, but I totally agree with Bob Ross. Then, mm -hmm. with a research project, you brought in a new species, um, a species of yeast. Why was that essential and how did it correlate with your findings? Like, if, if you're ever reading a research paper, I think, and, and do you ever see, like, oh, that kind of doesn't make sense, why do they do that? Uh, my professor said best when he said, often the two most important factors in any like project or in anything are time and money. <laughs> just like the kind of like the hidden factors that they influence it. Um, what, what I was trying to do was we we're trying to do something called um, working with like deletion strains. So we we're trying to take out the, um, the gene for SOD2. And then we were trying to sort of test the cell without SOD2 and see what happens when we take it out. And then we put back in SOD2. So it kind of like sees what are the other like effects and what are the other um, roles of SOD2 in, in the cell. The issue is that doing that in human cells is incredibly expensive and incredibly time consuming. So this was kind of something I, I, I wanted to tack on after I sort of proved my method, my computational methodology. I kind of wanted to see what the other functions of SOD2 were. Um, so 
instead of working with human cells and removing uh, SOD2 from that, what I did was I, we ran a phylogenic tree, which kind of measures how, uh, just on SOD2, to measure how different yeast SOD2 and human SOD2 are. And we found that they weren't very different. So then what I did was I computationally modeled um, the same processes that I had found in human cells to happen in yeast cells. And I found that they're very, very, very similar. As well as this, even like the, I, I created a, a, a computational structure of the yeast SOD2 protein and a computational structure of the human SOD2 protein. And then I compared the two structures and I found that they're very, very similar in, in terms of like that structural homology, meaning that human and yeast like systems of SOD2 must be very similar. Um, so then when I did like the yeast complementation of taking out the SOD2 strain from uh, yeast and then sort of testing it and then putting the SOD2 back in, it sort of does the same effect of doing that on a human cell, but uh, at a much quicker rate and at a much, much cheaper cost. Wow, that is truly amazing uh, that you found the correlation <laughs> between the two because your findings are in connection with developing the drug design too in the future because of the similarities between the two, right? We, we took these yeast cells that didn't have SOD2 in them and then we put them on plates that contained certain chemicals that would cause different stresses to the cell. So we put them on like high ethanol plates because the ethanol metabolism of uh, yeast cells is kind of dirty. Like it kind of creates byproducts that are very dangerous to the cell. As well as this, we did like tunicomycin, which causes something called endoplasmic reticulum stress, where like excess um, unfolded proteins build up in the endoplasmic reticulum and, uh, uh, and glucose as well, which is a, a different type of metabolism. And I found that... Um, like the cells lacking SOD2 kind of grew worse on those plates than the cells that had SOD2, meaning that SOD2 plays some role in cleaning up the metabolism of, uh, of those uh, different stresses. So that means that we can kind of look at SOD2 at, as a sort of process of saying, how does it influence those other kind of stresses? Oh, I see. So it, it stabilized those cells under all the three stresses you mentioned previously. Yes, sorry, stabilized. I think that's the, that's the word I was looking for, um, but yeah. That's amazing and congratulations on your project and for bringing home second award in biochemistry. Oh, thank you. <laughs> biochemistry was, I think, a tough cookie. When I was walking down in the lanes, um, those projects were particularly, you know, analytical, of course, we're talking about biochemistry, but also innovative <laughs> in the sense that um, they're bringing in new drug developments and new discoveries and methodologies. So, yeah, it's it's a big thing. That was one of the best parts of ISEF. I, I actually, no, hands down, the best part of ISEF was just walking around and talking to the other like people. Because it's, it's not just like the incredible research and the incredible like creativity and the incredible like ability of, of these students, but it's also like the different stories that each one had about why they did the project and like how they accomplished the, the different parts of the project. Because everyone kind of takes a different logical route in, in those projects. And it's just 
it's so amazing to see. I agree with that. You cannot place a scientist in a project booth in that sense. There are certain markers that define a scientist and I think that as you've expanded on, we all have a different approach to projects and what our backgrounds are and uh, what were the circumstances we conducted the research in and of course other personal markers. So it's a very complex and holistic experience when we are talking about connecting with others. For sure. And it's even like, I mean, like I'm, I'm sure like the, the Hungarian processes of, of maybe doing some of the biochemical processes are maybe different from some of the processes that like happen in, in US labs, just because of different sort of standards or different kind of modes of thought. And it's very, very interesting to, to see that. Especially when preparing uh, the papers for ISAF, there were some differences. And I mm -hmm. worked at a pharmaceutical company, so I had to be on a hotline with them to oh. <laughs> <laughs> get down to the gist of it. Yeah. Gotcha. No, I mean, that's, that's incredible. So you, so you worked in like an industrial setting to, to do your project? I started at a university level in my hometown, and then mm -hmm. I got to conduct research in my last year of high school at a pharmaceutical company. And believe me, oh, when wow. I stepped into that building, it was like Alice in Wonderland. So um, <laughs> <laughs> when I saw the HPLC MS machines and all the cool labs, it was truly mind-blowing. And then I had to... Mm -hmm. Uh, crash course in analytical chemistry course <laughs> in one of the offices, but um, it was truly a learning and growing experience that will stick with me. Yeah, I think that yeah, that 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 field of sort of drug design and calculational drug design, I think, is going to be changed so rapidly in the next few years, just because of like high throughput screening and computational drug design. Even like the projects at this year's STS, a lot of them focused on drug design, and a lot of them were just so so brilliant and so creative that it was it, it really makes you think that in the next couple of years you just won't have a common cold anymore just because of how smart these kids are for sure and bringing up the sds which is uh, a currently ongoing part of your life could you expand on your project and what you brought to that platform it was kind of the uh, project that bookended my, my research experience. So for um, for ISEF, I did it in my uh, my tenth grade and my eleventh grade, so kind of the middle years of of our high school. But then um, for my STS project, I actually started it my first year of high school. Um, but the thing is, I was kind of doing a statistical analysis. Uh, what I was doing was essentially healthcare in the U.S. is incredibly expensive and a a very important sort of political talking points. So one of like the key issues is about how we can reduce healthcare costs. Um, and normally normally what we do is we do uh, clinical trials with uh, different procedures to see which procedures are the most cost effective. But clinical trials can be hampered by a couple of things. You know, they can be very expensive because you have to recruit patients to be in these clinical trials. And um, they can also be limited by sample size. And they can also be biased because they're just based upon one or two hospitals. So what I thought was that if doctors are prescribing all of these procedures that they're doing in these clinical trials every single day to hundreds of thousands of different uh, patients um, every single day, if we are able to get nationwide data on those patients regarding their treatment, subsequent outcome, and total hospital charges, I would be able to use statistical tools to analyze the cost effectiveness of different procedures. And that might sort of fix the problems of clinical trials. Um, the, the issue was that in my freshman year, I didn't really know the statistical analysis well enough to really be able to do it. So in uh, my last summer, or like this summer, I guess, 
I kind of worked more on the, my uh, statistical understanding and kind of added to more uh, models to, to the project. Well, Statbone course at universities is um, mm -hmm. kind of the one that is very divisive and polarizing um, <laughs> <laughs> because you have to receive understanding and um, identify patterns in a large amount of numbers. In that data science project, what type of surgical procedures did you compare? I decided to look at what were the most common diseases within my data set. And then I picked a disease that was very common, but also had competing surgical procedures. And that was uh, appendicitis, uh, which uh, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure you know, but it, it's just the uh, inflammation of the appendix. And sometimes that can cause uh, some issues. There are two main ways that uh, surgeons really take care of uh, appendicitis. From, from what I understand, it's laparoscopic appendectomy and open appendectomy. So open appendectomy is kind of the older technique that requires a very large cut be made above the appendix, and then the appendix is removed. Laparoscopic appendectomy uh, requires two to three smaller cuts be made above the appendix, and that like a microscopic camera goes through one cut and a microscopic knife goes through another cut. So those smaller cuts generally lead to a faster recovery duration. So um, laparoscopic appendectomy is considered to be more effective yet more expensive than open appendectomy. So I wanted to test if laparoscopic appendectomy's sort of shorter recovery duration uh, justifies its higher cost. Comparing the two, since there is a difference in cost and, well, effectiveness based on traditional findings, what was um, the groundbreaking result that you've achieved? Which one is the better? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know if uh, I can call it groundbreaking, but um, I, I think what I, what I found was that you know, I, I could really control for demographics in my equations. Um, so through that, I found that laparoscopic appendectomy was more expensive than open appendectomy by about $3,600, but also um, shortens recovery duration by about 0.44 days. So uh, I, I don't know if one is necessarily better, but I think that maybe some patients of a limited means would prefer to stay in the hospital for an extra 0.44 days if it means saving that $3,600. I also found that there are roughly 250,000 appendectomies that happen every single year. So if every one of those appendectomies were uh, open rather than laparoscopic, the total cost savings for the U.S. could be like $1.2 billion. And that's just for one medical condition. Um, there are other medical conditions that I can also run this analysis upon. So the, the actual number could be a, a little higher than that. David think it's groundbreaking in the U.S. budget for sure. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like healthcare is, it's, it's just like a huge issue here. And I, I think even after this, you know, a lot of the healthcare costs comes from sort of administrative fees. I think um, in terms of per capita spending on patients, we're actually uh, maybe a little higher than average. But in terms of administrative costs, we're easily number one, like we're, we're, we double the, the, next, um, the next country. So I think that's kind of the next step of seeing why are there so many administrative costs? Um, and sort of reducing that as, as well. Yes, bringing it to the policies level. And if we're talking about politics, this is going to be one of the areas the if questions are going to target. You've conducted research. I don't know how much of this research in the pandemic or any kind of research. Does it affect your investigation flow? And how do you think the utilization of online platforms um, affect your work? Does it hinder it or galvanize process in your experience? That's a really interesting question. You know, I, I think um, 
for, for me, the biggest components of uh, any research project has always been like the background information stage where I'm just like reading as much as I can. And um, I think that's a pretty common, like from what I've seen, it seems to be like a pretty common thing with uh, with a lot of researchers. You kind of just like, just try to like gouge on as much information as, as, as is possible. But so I think that sort of stage is not really hindered just because of, you know, journals are all online now and there are so many great YouTube videos. I mean, like, I, I know for me specifically, so much of my statistics was just learned from like random, like economics professors on the internet, just making videos. The, the big thing about like the pandemic has been that we can't interact with each other. And, and also if uh, one works in like a physical lab where something is not computationally based, then it, I, I believe it's kind of more of an issue. Like I know the, the last bio lab that I worked in, it's been closed down. Like they're not allowed to go back just because of, of how the pandemic is working. I know there are also a lot of like international graduate students who are also not able to um, to, to come to the US or, or don't want to maybe come to the US and, and risk their health. So I, I know that that has kind of been hindering a, a lot of people. There are many setbacks and a lot of people say that we will not go back to the way we were accustomed to. And right. <laughs> there is a destabilization and we have to rethink our patterns and how we even think about education now because i think that just as you said that you studied economy online or econ line um <laughs> before that to gain knowledge the growing presence of taking up online courses is going to be more part of our lives and that opens up new roads but of course physical limitations can have an effect on, on relationships and developing uh, friendships uh, when you are not looking at a screen but at the person's 3d image <laughs> for sure you know I, I think um i'm i'm heading off to college the next year and i think that's one of the biggest things that's kind of like uh going to be a little bit of a bummer because our courses are all, all online for for freshmen so we kind of don't have like a just an intro orientation we kind of aren't able to like build those connections that are that are so prominent. But but I will say, you know, regarding STS, like that's sorry, it's just on my mind right now because it's happening right now. But you know, they they switched from a physical kind of thing to a virtual thing, and quite honestly, I think that made us come closer together because we've been having so many calls just throughout the summer and um, before even like the physical um, the physical fair and. Be, like through those calls and we've been like playing online games and just talking with each other we've gotten actually i mean i think we've gotten actually pretty close it, it may not be as bad as we think yes and i realized that you brought up the sds experience an innovative thing to transform the whole fair experience and um bring it to the digital and virtual level how was the whole sds experience like uh, what's it like competing at the virtual science fair because i don't think that many have done it before they said like this was the first time they had um made it virtual and when they actually said that, we were kind of like, you know, this, I, I believe this uh, science fair has gone through like multiple world war, like a, a world war and like multiple, like the Korean war and the Vietnam war. <laughs> <laughs> so, but no, but I mean, it, it was beyond my wildest expectations. You know, I thought that it might not be as sort of interactive. And I thought it was kind of, it would be a little more distant. The society who, who runs the, uh, runs ISEF and runs STS. They just did such a good job and and put so much effort into it that we can we can totally see it. You know, like like today, what they uh, what they were doing was they were doing a geocaching adventure, where um, 
I guess like they they recruited our parents behind our backs uh, to uh, kind of like hide different items um, in like a two mile radius around our house. And so we kind of have to go around and find them. And um, like all the like SDS uh, finalists, I believe we're going to be on like a call while we're doing that. So we're all going to be like talking with each other and trying to find it. They, they've just done so much to, to try to make this experience as authentic as possible. It, and the, I mean, the effort really, really shows. Even judging, like uh, judging works a little differently at STS, but even judging was was so well done. And so, I mean, I, I didn't think I had a single technical difficulty the entire time. So yeah, they, they just, yeah, I mean, I'm so thankful that they put in that much work in, into this. It sounds awesome. And um, that she said that it was a pleasant surprise that she could connect with people virtually and um, develop new connections. And I think that the presence of online platforms and the SDS experience might have showed it to you that you can actually, you know, translate a lot of nonverbal cues even on FaceTime or on Zoom, uh, but do not name any platforms on video chat calls. <laughs> And it makes you more aware of your of the tonality of your voice, of your body language. Yeah, above that, I also saw that you were rocking on the virtual dance floor, uh, and you had a DJ on. What was it like? <laughs> oh, I mean, yeah, that's that's another one of the the events that they did. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. You know, Zoom and all, and all of FaceTime, all of these have been so so useful, but. Yeah, they, that was one of the other events that they uh, that they did. I almost I can't believe I almost forgot about that. What they did was they sent us just a couple of very let's say interesting uh, items to like so like a like a funny little hat and some sunglasses and like a I'm feeling what this is called like a garland of like uh, plastic flowers, and uh, they they kind of had like a a DJ in air quotes to uh, to like have an ad every dance break. So after judging every day, we'd have like a little. Uh, dancing time it was you know it's crazy and so silly and it was just so much fun like it was it was great like hearing the music the random like uh, music that everyone was playing and i mean it, oh, it was amazing and you know like like last night we had a um a game night with kyle hill who's like a uh, a science influence a science influencer and that was also so incredible because agreed so graciously to take time out of his, out of his day and just play a few online games with us and it was just such an incredible experience you know it's one of those things that you won't really forget for a very very long time i think that is incredible <laughs> and what kind of games did you bring to the table <laughs> i think i think well let's see we, we played like a a bunch of like scientific trivia games and it was very humbling because you know it feels like you know every single answer except for the one that you get called on and you're like oh god damn it no <laughs> 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 no, not this one. But yeah, oh my god, yeah. So we played uh, like a, a couple of trivia games, like name the famous scientist, uh, name like the famous engineering marvel, kind of like those lists of like what does not belong. And yeah, it was, uh, it, it was, it was a great time. <laughs> so fun that uh, they also introduced this playful experience and could have dance breaks. I would actually hope that they're gonna. Uh, bring this concept into the next ISEP because imagine if oh, you would have God. dance breaks between judging sessions. <laughs> <laughs> that would be that would be amazing. To be honest, like that, the day of judging at ISEP is so intense too. I mean, it's it, it's incredibly fun, and I I think that's one of my favorite days of of ISEP. But it's so intense that a dance break afterwards, I think, would be well well warranted. <laughs> Absolutely, you have to be really in competition mode, and it's a very single perspective. <laughs> Right. Um, stay to be in, um, but definitely. 
and I actually actually saw that you um you uh, came to the public day, which is awesome of you. Thank you so much for for STS. But was that also like a was it like a good experience on the uh, on the other side or? Absolutely, mm -hmm. I participated at the ISEP virtual experience, but I think that the mm -hmm. addition that they introduced um, the chat platform, so you could actually chat with the finalists, was truly incredible. And I could mm -hmm. walk through the projects and listen to your videos, um, your expansions. It was really cool to get to know all the amazing works uh, you do, whether that may invite being computation, um, data science, biology, cancer research, so a variety of uh, projects. And I encourage the listeners to check your projects mm -hmm. out and take a oh, look at what the top 40 <laughs> in America is doing. <laughs> Beyond research, um, you're invested mm -hmm. in uh, various fields, including public outreach in the sense that you've established Conference Cafe. How does it seek to benefit the community? The Conference Cafe at, at my school is kind of a little, um, I don't know, it, it's kind of a, a bit of a meme, I guess. <laughs> we, uh, we, we, uh, me and my friends, we we took it over um, when like the old like leaders kind of left in uh, in our freshman year, and uh, after that we almost killed it. Like for a year, it didn't happen. But essentially, what we do is we would sell bagels, and then um, some of the proceeds would go to uh, to different charities. Junior year, so our third year in high school, we we kind of brought it back, and I I don't know. I I always found it to be a real fun experience. We kind of like got to give bagels to people. Um, I, I don't know necessarily if it's like a, the best thing to put on your resume for, for people who want to do it or, or like the best thing to, to kind of do. But I, I, I think it was a, a great time. And this year, um, the, the people who lead the conference cafe are our student council. And the heads of the student council are people named prefects. So I, I actually wasn't, uh, wasn't uh, voted a prefect, but one of my friends was. And he kind of led a conference cafe this year. And they did just a, I kind of... Uh, lean back from like a, a position in, in conference cafe this year but it, i think they did such an incredible job they donated a lot of money and, and raised a ton of funds and i think it, it really helped the people that that got the money calories do not count when it's for a good cause <laughs> um, beyond conference cafe you also engage in debates you're in a debate club you founded a debate club right yeah i mean it was it was very short-lived again i think maybe for like just a couple meetings but that debate club was actually um the, the start of my one of my science fair projects because we we kind of started it in a very like a, a time that was very political like uh in, in our country and so a lot of the debates were very very political and one of the debates was about healthcare, and that kind of led me down the path of oh let me look at how we can reduce healthcare costs so in, in that sense it was very good to be honest i was never a very good debater but i loved hearing my, my friends uh, opinions you know I, I think what makes like the best debater is someone who's not debating because they have like an agenda. I think it's someone who's debating because like they actually believe in their idea. Because you can kind of ferret out people who are just debating because someone told them to, to debate for that idea or so, or I guess someone paid them to debate with that idea. But if you're, if someone's debating based purely on like morals and based purely on what they truly think, I think it's very hard to kind of out debate them when it's not mm -hmm. forced um you feel that it's coming from the inside and you can feel that overflow when it's just surface level you also receive surface level information and it doesn't cut deep not just in your heart because beyond 
emotional connection. You've got to have the cool facts. So forging <laughs> a mind connection as well. For sure. And, you know, I, I think, do you agree that like, some of those like debating skills and ideologies, do you think they kind of um, apply to ISAF as well? Absolutely. It's really important. And also one of the mm -hmm. tips um, that most ISAF finalists give when presenting your project is to uh, present it with passion and excitement. You've got to have that internal flame. Um, and I think that even if someone has it, maybe they might be on the more introverted side and it's harder to communicate that. But with great training, you can voice that with your presentation methodology. It's you know hard for people who cannot open up that easily, but with practice, the same passion can be translated in the presentation process. I see a lot of my like younger friends kind of presenting their research and the thing is, they look so like nervous and so unhappy. But I also know that they are so excited and so passionate about their research. They're just not showing it, you know. And and so I think the number one tip is just be happy. Like don't don't worry that the judges will you know let you oh you didn't memorize something properly. Just be happy and be excited to share all that you know with people who are super interested in the same stuff that you're super interested in. But like that passion, that inner flame, really. It's very hard to, to, to fake that. Yes, but you, you've got to bring it to <laughs> the circus and, and show it to others. And I agree with you. Um, right. Did you face any challenges on how to make a good presentation? Was there something you had to overcome during your journey? <laughs> I, I'm actually pretty introverted myself, and I tend to speak extremely fast. So I remember my first time presenting my, my research. I thought I was doing really well because the judges weren't asking me questions, which, side note, one of the worst signs possible in, 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 in research. <laughs> yeah. What I realized afterwards um, was that like, not a single judge could understand what I was saying because I was speaking so fast. But I think once I kind of learned to like tone it down and just be excited in the right way, you know, just be excited to, to talk with people and engage in, just engage in a conversation, not really like a, a lecture or a presentation, that helped me so much in terms of just calming down and, and, and being excited. Yes, and turn down the sweet level of it. <laughs> right. You know what my, my favorite part, like one of my the most interesting parts of ISF is I think when you when you when I first went, I thought everyone there would kind of be like a little, you know, maybe a little nerdy, maybe a little introverted. I, I mean this is at least my experience, but it was absolutely not that case. I mean everyone was so extroverted, so happy, so so excited to meet you. It, I mean, it was just a wonderful experience. Absolutely. And I think that when you are in a community with like-minded scientists and friends, those ones who tend to be on the more introverted side uh, go through a personality change and um, your extroverted side blossoms more because you have mm -hmm. that open space to be with uh, people who inspire you too. The theory of introverts is that the social battery kind of um, worsens or kind of uh, gets smaller and smaller and smaller the more an introvert talks to someone else. Whereas the social battery of some of an extrovert is, is charged by talking to someone else. But I think that's kind of, I don't know, I think you can be introverted about some things, but super extroverted by others. Because I think I can, I can be really excited about talking about certain subjects and be really like entertained by talking about certain subjects, but maybe not so entertained by other subjects. I think for most like student researchers, one of those subjects that really gets the social battery recharging and, and, and going 
is is talking about their research. Yes,、uh, <laughs> I really like the analogy. You can say that you're a thematic ambivert, or many scientists are in that case. <laughs> right. <laughs> I know we've touched on the topic of baking previously, but would you like to add any thoughts on the correlations you see between baking and chemistry? I think I've said all I can without getting too embarrassing into my baking fails. But <laughs> I, I, I mean, I've tried so many like weird ingredients in those cookies. I'm like, oh, you know, like adding an acid should help like make the cookies rise or something. And so I add like the strange acids. And then the thing is. When reading like the scientific journals, we, we I always think about like texture and like the shape of the structural integrity of a cookie, but I always, I kind of forget about the like the the flavor <laughs> part, which may be the most interesting, maybe the most important part. So it kind of just. I'm kind of like, yeah, that's not gonna work out. Yeah, like, hey, everybody, this is the perfect chocolate chip cookie based on <laughs> scientific research, and it tastes like, oh, well, yeah, theoretically, yes. <laughs> and you know, I think that's so true in some research too. Like, we can be so focused on certain things that we can just completely forget about like the common sense part. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think most people at ICF are just like they're sort of.、Um, Quantitative intelligence and qualitative intelligence is is incredible. Their book smarts are off the charts, but I think the common sense might be at least for me. It, it was it's much lower than like the average person, <laughs> just because I tend to like you know. <laughs> I, I get it.、Um, when I was in the microbiology lab, we had to work with several microbial solutions, and they all contained <laughs> resistant strains. Right? Of course, I was wearing gloves and、um, every kind of requirement, and then. I touched one of those jars. I didn't realize, but there was some glue on it、uh, because、oh. of the sticker. And then I moved <laughs> it, and it all fell apart. So it completely flooded <laughs> on、oh, the、no. table. <laughs> um, and I told the lab lady who was、um, checking in and out that um, um, some kind of problem happened. <laughs> Can you please come in? <laughs> Don't worry. I, I think I think every person who's ever worked in a lab has had a very very similar experience. Do you know those、um, protein gels,、uh, like Western blots?、Um, oh yeah, a lot so... of a lot of memes born out of Western <laughs> blots. Yeah. I, I remember one time, like it、uh, it runs on electricity, so like the、um, I, I'm sure you know, but like it, it pulls down the、uh, proteins because they're sometimes like charged or, or or whatever. So I remember one time, I think like one of the wires was kind of like ruptured, and it it, it kind of was sparking. And it started sparking, and I don't know why, but I just was like, "Oh, I know what I, I know what I should do." So I just put my hand around like the sparking wire, and I think I think like the lights in the lab just kind of went off for a second, went back on because it electrocuted me so hard. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "Oh my god, what am I doing?" What an electrifying experience. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, these are really the great parts of science. <laughs> There are two questions we like exploring in the podcast: the possible scenarios, and since science is about questioning, then it fits the narrative. And、uh, this one is a bit politics related. So, if you had a magic wand or go law school like,、uh, if you became a czar of legislation, <laughs> what would you alter in our society, and why would you make that choice? Firstly, I love I love the term "star of legislation." I absolutely love that term. I think I'm definitely gonna use that more.、Um, but you know what? I think that right now the topical answer would be、uh, put a lot of money in a, into, into COVID research, just a ton of money into like making sure, especially in the U.S., that people are socially distancing 
and our, our everyone is available to wear a mask and and the um the testing times can can be shortened because i know in the us some people have like i don't know seven day waits for for the test which is kind of honestly pointless with, with covid-19 but i think after the pandemic is done i think what i would want to do is do just put so much money into renewable energy or maybe the next generation of of nuclear energy because i really think that's one of the issues that's really prominent to us will be climate change the us pulled out of the the paris climate uh, paris climate uh, agreement which is a completely voluntary agreement anyways but we still pulled out and the thing is it's not even just like a i mean this is a hard thing to put aside but it's not even just the existential threat of changing how our world works and that we'll have less food and and less livable spaces on the planet it it's it's also about you know and i guess that's in the long term and it's kind of hard to visualize that in politics but it's it's also about like a job creation and the the next big technology will be green technology just because of you know we're having decreasing rates of um like a race of profit on on fossil fuels because we've kind of gone over a uh, hubbard hubbard's peak for example with uh, with natural gas once green technology hits the rate of becoming very efficient which which it will in the next 4 to 5 years well it'll be much more useful and much more effective than uh, even fossil fuels and as well as that it'll also be great for for our climate so i i would love to put more money into doing research about green energy absolutely and in politics when um someone is is president and has that omnipotent uh, tsar like uh, ability <laughs> to make changes it's important what you've expanded on that decisions someone makes in that four year run or eight year run depending um on the success of once running but decisions have a longer term impact on the world it can create a legacy or it it can create a burden depending on the outcomes i like your approach because you've targeted the mitochondria on a cellular level the powerhouse of the cell <laughs> uh, but you want to take it to a national or you would take it to a national global level to um have that renewable yeah. style for sure and you know i think i heard um hungary's doing really well with uh, renewable energy right or or i think the uk in the eu in general too is Yes, uh with renewable energy, I've been working in public outreach for European startups. One very big spike is actually personalized medicine and um computational diagnostics. That's a very um exponential field, but also yeah, renewable energy and bringing new solutions here at the um technological university, they are continuously building new electric cars and several station um at different spots in the country. And you know, I think personalized medicine also is is incredible. We had um one of our speakers for from STS was uh was Feng Zhang and I think he was also the speaker um when we both went to uh to ISF last year and I mean his his research Christopher Castnine has been so incredible like in that short time it's been discovered it, it has the possibility to change so much it must have been such a great interview or like a conversation with him because he is truly a pioneer and crisper as you said um at one point of our conversation is truly going to determine the outcourse of technology and our personal lives in the well next couple of years who knows the the speed of that uh, gene editing technology right the interview was was incredible the, we even got to ask like uh, questions of him and he was such a like humble and a nice guy it was 
just incredible to see. He's so young too. Like he he was an STS finalist, uh, STS winner actually in uh, 2003. So he was our age, maybe, uh, I don't know, 20-ish years ago. He's, he, I mean, it's incredible how much he's achieved <laughs> and it's really inspiring. Mind-blowing. He's on the platform. He knows, you know, STS finalist, you're going to be on the panel uh, 10 or 15 years <laughs> from now. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, maybe we'll see. <laughs> and talking about famous people, if you could have dinner with anyone living today or in the past, sadly we cannot go into the future, but who would you choose and why? So in the US, um, sometimes for Apple college applications, um, they ask like very small questions where you have maybe like 30, uh, 30 characters to answer. So like maybe one or two words or sometimes answers. And so this is actually a question that I got asked from one of my universities. And no. my answer was, <laughs> no, but that's a really good thing. I think they spend like a lot of time developing those questions. That means you're, you're as smart as those uh, admissions counselors. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, not that stereotypical then. <laughs> <laughs> no, but m my answer is, um, oh, I think it's kind of weird, but it's, do, do you know um, John Paul Jones? Sounds so familiar. He doesn't pop in my mind. So there are actually, actually two. One is the uh, lead drummer for Led Zeppelin, which is a great band, but not the person I'm talking about. Uh, that The guy I'm actually talking about, he was the father of the American Navy. And I want to talk to him just because I think he was actually insane. Like he was, he was an incredible person. So what happened was during the American Revolution, the, the British Navy was the best Navy in the world. I mean, hands down, like even now, Britain's considered to be like a sea power. That's that's where they project their strength. And um, the Americans at the beginning of the revolution didn't really have a navy. So uh, like scholars of the day would be like, oh, the American Revolution can never succeed because the Americans didn't have a navy. So this John Paul Jones guy was like, oh, I have an idea. Don't worry. What he did was he just sailed to Europe and stole a buccaneer, which is the equivalent of like, per like personally by yourself stealing like a battleship. And then he, he stole that, sailed it to, uh, I think, France, and then used it as, as his, like, pirate ship. So essentially it was, like, a pirate raiding different towns in England and, like, stealing the ships and bringing it back to different countries. And so he was just this incredibly, incredible, incredible guy. And, I mean, one time, like, one of his famous quotes is, like, one time he was losing in a battle and uh, the, the enemy admiral said, like, oh, will you surrender? Uh, we're decimating your troops, you know? And he's like, I will not surrender because I have yet to begin to fight. You know, and he's just just this incredible, incredible individual. And I'd love to just talk with him and be like, how did you come up with these ideas? <laughs> like, what, 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 what possessed you to steal a battleship? <laughs> I mean, <and> how... <laughs> but yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that guy was incredible. I, I'm curious, though, who would, who would you choose? What a power move, first of all, uh, from him to... <laughs> <laughs> to do that and um, just on that note I'll ask your question but um, it is true when facing a battle that um, I, I watched an infographic on how to fight a lion I don't know it sounds totally reasonable in time of pandemic but the, the thing is that you should not run away but keep and maintain sufficient eye contact and try to scream as loud as possible to show that you are just as dominant as he is or, or even more I think that um, you know your example is, is truly great because we have to fight battles in our life and um, you, you got to stand mm -hmm. your ground. I think my, my favorite thing about him was that he was able to recruit a crew to like help him with that. 
And my question is, how do you get people like so loyal or so dedicated or, or, or whatever to just go on these like crazy madcap adventures? You know, how, how, do you, how do you inspire people in that sense to just follow you into like the depths of I don't even know? You know, <laughs> and so, so that's, I think, the main question I would, I would probably be asking him. What's an, an incredible conversation uh, that would have been with him. Uh, such a genius and such a leader. But yeah, it's an interesting question. I was recently interviewed by Christina, a scientific communication platform, and I was asked who I would interview. I couldn't mm -hmm. answer right away. You know, I always ask that question, but I never directed mm -hmm. towards me. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> but no, no, I actually have an answer, so <laughs> now I do. <laughs> we are talking about a living person. I would choose Princess Victoria from Sweden. When I traveled to Sweden to Sias, I actually almost religiously studied the Swedish royal family <laughs> um, on the plane, and I could name their grandchildren and everything, but... <laughs> oh. <laughs> Um, actually, Princess Victoria is a great advocate for science, and she is hosting competition on how to solve water issues. We actually visited a company called Silem, like the, the carrier that brings water to the cells in a plant. And um, we visited that, and they are trying to solve issues concerning water and water use. So Silem actually supports the competition called the Stockholm Junior Water Prize. She is also an advocate for sports. We are talking about a living person. It would be great to have a talk with Victoria. <laughs> for sure, she sounds incredible. Wow, I I, I did not know actually about the uh, the Swedish. I must I must search that up later. The uh, Swedish royal family. We are now at the this or that game. So, mm -hmm. as the name suggests, you gotta choose either or: mountain or beach. Mountain. Do you go to hikes? You know, I I actually really enjoy it. The only thing is, I think I'm a little. I, I have a, a good deal of like motion sickness and altitude sickness. But uh, yeah, I I like to um I really like to go biking. I really like to go hiking. I just I guess we haven't had a lot of time in in, in the past few days. Mountains are a little better than beaches, in in my opinion. <laughs> and the next one is apple or pumpkin pie. Ooh, ah, as you're 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 t twinging on my American heartstrings. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I think it I think it has to be apple, just because I I love apple pie so much. You know, in um, in Wisconsin, like the state that I'm in, uh, we have a lot of apple orchards where you can go apple picking in the fall, and it's it's amazing because like a fresh apple tastes so different from like a real oh, just like a apple that you get in the store. And there's so many different like varieties and they all taste so different. But yeah, apple pies, oh, I think there's nothing more American and nothing more, nothing more delicious. <laughs> that sounds literally so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> and the next one is TV shows, like series or films? I think I would go with uh, TV shows. I think I just like, um, I don't know, I think I like having more content. You know, I, I love like those uh, TV show documentaries. I don't know, there's one really great documentary on Netflix called um, Behind the Curve. It's on like Flat Earthers. And it's just this incredible, incredibly interesting, incredibly interesting documentary. Do you think that um, it's convincing to people who believe in a flat earth theory? <laughs> <laughs> you know what, actually, that's what they that's what they kind of go into the um, in like the uh, documentary. I thought that the documentary would kind of just be like making fun of the flat earthers. But what it actually goes into is kind of like, why would someone believe in that? Like, we've all agreed that the Earth has been round for thousands of years. Why is that kind of now changing? Why are there other people who, who disbelieve that? And it, it kind of goes into how, like, the psychology of it and, and why people believe that. And I think it, it seems to be a combination of some people 
actually do believe in that. Some people maybe just don't trust the science. And some people are trying to use kind of the movement for their own purposes. So that's the kind of the conclusion I think that the um, the documentary kind of comes to. But yeah, is, is Flat Earth like a thing in uh, in, in Hungary? I, th I think it might be a very American um, American organization. Very interesting. Actually, I remember at ISAP that we had a flyer going around on Flat Earth stuff. Um, that was oh. <laughs> supposed to be, of course, that was a prank. Um, <laughs> Hungary, I don't think it's um, that prevalent like in the US, but um, I watch US media and um, some of the <laughs> conversation on YouTube, um, I think it was from mm -hmm. Jubilee, it's called Common Ground and you've had scientists on board and also flat earthers, best conversations born out of that uh, those are who are not so emotionally invasive. Just as a documentary you've been watching shows mm -hmm. the rationale, the facts and try to right. speak to the mind because you cannot have all the feels and you want to win an argument. For sure. Yeah, I, I think you're 100% right. Dancing or singing? Okay, I, I must admit I am really bad at both of those. Um, but I think I would go with dancing because I think it has a little less sight drawn to you. Or, I, you know what, I would, I would do singing if I'm in a crowd. But if, if it's dancing, then I, I, I probably do dancing because I think I can fake being a good dancer better than I can fake being a singer. <laughs> <laughs> and um, what is your go-to song to jam to with your dance moves? Ooh, you know what? I, I am a really big fan of like um, 60s and 70s classic rock. Um, one of my one of my favorite songs, I, I, I don't really dance to, to a lot of those, but I think one of my favorite songs is uh, House of the Rising Sun by The Animals. Um, and also like just almost anything by Led Zeppelin is uh, is, is really great to me. That's great. Also listen to ACDC and those. Oh, yeah. Okay, okay. Are you also a big fan of uh, classic rock? or? There are some good songs, but, you know, more alternative in my taste. For sure. <laughs> yeah, okay. I, w I won't hold it against you, but... Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Just... <laughs> a very complex one, actually. Um, chocolate or Ooh. vanilla? <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> you know what? I think I go with vanilla because I think more things can go into vanilla, you know? Like, I think you can put, like, you can make it fruity, you can put fruits on top, you can make, like, you can put caramel and stuff, but I don't know if those things necessarily go with, uh, go with chocolate too much. So, more customizable, in my opinion. Wider For variety. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> what's, your, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? Hmm. My favorite flavor? I remember a flavor called Harry Potter from my childhood. Uh, I really oh. like that. <laughs> it was truly magical. <laughs> I think it was a berry flavored, but not with that um, sweet tone, but a, a little bit of interesting undertone to it. But I like tropical mm -hmm. ones, and I think my favorite would be passion fruit. No, I'm I'm such a big Harry Potter fan too. Oh my god, the 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 best books. <laughs> you read them all? Oh yeah, I actually, you know, I I try re I try rereading them. Uh, every summer, just <laughs> because that's how much of a nerd I am, and I actually just reread them, and they're oh, they're so, they're, they just bring a smile to my face every time I every time I read them. <laughs> <laughs> Can I tell you a secret? <laughs> <laughs> I only watched one Harry Potter movie, and that was oh, no! <laughs> <laughs> just recently. I haven't watched any of them, and then Alison's yeah 
the winner of the Young Scientist Award in 2019 actually highly recommended me to watch the Harry Potter movie. Okay, okay. If, if these people are telling you to watch Harry Potter, I feel like you have to watch Harry Potter this scenario. <laughs> and I liked it. I gotta tell you. I liked it. I see right. why you like it. <laughs> <laughs> then no spoilers, please. <laughs> Closing question that encapsulates all of the things you've been talking about um, on the podcast is, on a personal note, what does science mean to you? I think science just means, and this is such a basic answer, but it just means to me to ask questions, you know, to question everything, you know, not, not to take anything for granted and to try to understand everything. And that, that doesn't just mean like even biology and chemistry and physics, but also relates to like people, you know, why do people act in a certain way or why do um, I don't know why, why do why do dogs like to to lick us or whatever? Why do dogs like to play fetch with us? I, I think I, I love asking that question of why, and I really don't like stopping <laughs> asking those those threads of questions of why. And I think that's that's what science has taught me, and that's what. I think I want to take forward in my uh, my journey. That is great, and you expanded on beautifully how science puts away all those roadblocks on our way <laughs> by asking the big question, uh, the why question, and pulls on people's heartstrings and also neurons. Um, because <laughs> when you explore kind of intuitively, um, not talking about um, intuition in its traditional sense, but recognizing patterns beyond the surface <laughs> and trying to connect the dots and then when you have a holistic view, gain wisdom by it. So yeah, I, mm-hmm. I totally agree with that. And and also with science is I guess another thing is it's it's helped me like build all these like relationships and meet all these incredible people through all of these science fairs. And that's I guess something else I'll also remember for a very, very long time. Case in points, this uh <laughs> this podcast. Absolutely. It's, it's not just about pure science or your um, abstract number, but also the people you meet along the journey. And um, mm-hmm. they can give so much to your life and enrich it in, um, well, sometimes unexplainable ways. Thank you for expanding on a variety of topics all the way from uh, cooking through your scientific process to <laughs> policy making mm-hmm. and, and everything in between. So thank you for coming on the podcast and um, inspiring yeah, many. Oh, thank you for having me. This has been this has been so much fun. And I want to say like this, this podcast is such a great idea. I think we were talking before, but you said like you, you were talking with people at, at ISAF and those those conversations are just so interesting that you had to had to put them online. I think that's like the one of the best ways to describe why ISIP is great and why this podcast is is fantastic. So, so thank you so much for doing this podcast and thank you so much for having me on. Thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate your genuine words and um, thanks again for coming on. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. If you want to show your support and be updated on all the news, make sure to hit that subscribe button and follow the pod on Instagram and Facebook as well. As always, thank you for taking a few moments of science with us and stay tuned for the next episode.